1 Samuel chapter 25 today. Uh, I have put it into the church app because we'll be uh, breaking it up as we go along, uh, talking about the story of Abigail meeting David. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll read that in a moment. Just to, We need a little bit of background to this story to really be able to put everything that's happening into context and understand it because um, there are parts that are a little, little weird from a Christian point of view. So we need to remember here that David is on the run. He's got 600 men with him. Uh, the Bible says it's sort of some of them are family, some are criminals and misfits and, and all sorts of... Uh, people, an interesting band. He's become hugely popular, and this is why he's on the run. Uh, the King Saul sees him as a rival to the throne and to his dynasty, and he's got great reason for that because David is. David is his anointed replacement, and uh, everyone re- is beginning to recognize this. Even Saul's son, who is the crown prince, and heir to the throne, knows that David is going to take the throne, and uh, Saul's son Jonathan. Jonathan is all set to become David's uh, second in command. They are best friends, and uh, and Jonathan recognizes what's going on here. It's, it's Saul who's really turned his back on God who has the issue. What's just happened is we have this story in the previous chapter where, where as David is on the run, Saul is actually hunting him. And there's two occasions where David has Saul literally at the end of his spear. Saul's camp is sleeping. David sneaks up. Uh, the guy with him says, this is your chance. Pin him down. Run him through. And David's like, no, nah, uh, it, it's not for me. It, it, Saul was anointed as king. Uh, when he was first chosen, and, and, and David, I can't kill God's anointed, uh, and it's up to God when this change of um, dynasty, this, this change to the throne takes place, and David has this trust in God, and he expresses it on numerous occasions. David goes through valleys of despair, but through it all, he's trusting God, which puts this particular episode we're about to read into an interesting context. So let's read the first few verses, 1 Samuel 25, starting at verse 2. A man in Maon had a business in Carmel, where he was very, a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, this is all down in the southern part of Israel, sort of nearish the Dead Sea. The man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name, Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent ten young men, instructing them, Go up to Carmel, and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, Long life to you, and peace to you, peace to your family, and peace to all that is yours. I hear that you're shearing. When your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them, and nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. Ask you young men, and they will tell you. 
So let my young men find favour with you, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. David's young men went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf, and they waited. So we meet this guy, Nabal. We don't see him anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, And we read, the first thing we're, we're told is that despite his considerable wealth, he is harsh and evil in his dealings. And his name actually means senseless or foolish in a, in a kind of moral sense, which is in contrast to the woman we're immediately told about, his wife Abigail, who is intelligent and beautiful. Abigail, incidentally, means father's joy or father's delight. She's one of my favorite figures in the Bible, so much so that we named our youngest child after her. So the narrator kind of makes it clear that Nabal has uh, married above his class, at least in terms of character, if not in terms of social status. And so you've got to wonder immediately, what is Abigail doing with a loser like Nabal? Well, he's not actually a loser. He's probably quite a powerful man. We see that he's very wealthy. He's possibly a clan leader uh, and... Uh, Abigail is probably in an arranged marriage. It would have been uh, advantageous to her family for her to be married to Nabal. So he probably didn't have a lot of say in the matter. Nabal is from the same tribe as David. They're both from the tribe of Judah. And so as David's approaching Nabal, there's probably some kind of kinship tie here. Now, it may not be that they're even directly related, but, but they have this identity together. There's, there's a tie through their tribe. Uh, yeah, through their tribe. And shearing time is festival time. Everyone's partying. You know, wool means money. And, uh, and so probably as they're working hard, the extra calories from uh, killing sheep for food and so on is, is probably helpful as well. So David sends a message to his kinsmen asking for a favour for him and his men. And you notice David's language here. He's very deferential. Uh, He calls himself Nabal's son. He he wishes him peace and so on. And basically, hey, Nabal, my, my man and I, we haven't hassled you. Can we have some food? Which I don't know about you, but to my mind on the surface of it almost sounds like a protection racket. Thank you. Someone, get, someone else thinks so. First Samuel, let's uh, continue with verse 10. Nabal asked them, Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat that I have butchered for my shearers and give them to these men? I don't know where they're from. David's young men retrace their steps. When they returned to him, they reported all these words. He said to his men, All of you put on your swords. So each man put on his sword, and David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So obviously, Nabal rejects David's request in no uncertain terms. And David's reaction is really intense. I mean, strap on your swords. Again, it really does make it sound like a protection racket, something the mafia would do, but is 
David's reaction actually reasonable in some way? Well, yes and no. We need to, as I said at the start, put this into the context of who David is and what's going on here. Nabal didn't just refuse to help David. He didn't say, sorry, we can't spare anything. He insults David and he spurns him so badly that Nabal's servants know he's inviting trouble. Remember, David is famous at this point. One of the things that got jealous uh, Saul jealous is the, um, the songs they would make up were Saul has killed his thousands but David his tens of thousands. David was a hero in the land. So ignorance isn't an excuse for Nabal. This isn't, this isn't someone who is speaking uh, out of genuine ignorance. Remember then that David is also the anointed king. This is the future ruler of the land Nabal is speaking to. And so Nabal isn't just rejecting an upstart racketeer. He is rejecting the future king of Israel. And really he is siding with Saul and against David and against God in effect. David is justified in having a very strong reaction, but as we'll see, uh, violence is not the right response. At the very least, the law of retribution, which is in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, says equal retribution. Don't escalate. When someone insults you, going at them with a knife, I think is pretty clearly escalating. Nabal's response would have uh, probably had a curse as a um, justified response. David could have called called down uh, curses from heaven on him, but not a war party. And so what we've got really is two hot-headed men about to start a war. Verse 14. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail... Nabal's wife, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed at them. The men treated us very well. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living among them. They were a wall around us both day and night, the entire time we were with them herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you should do because there is certain to be trouble for our master." and for his entire family. He is such a worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisin, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she said to her male servants, Go ahead of me, I will be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As he, she rode the donkey down a mountain pass, hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her and met them. David had just said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely, severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. 
She knelt at his feet and said, The guilt is mine, my Lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My Lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my Lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living. But he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Well, there's a lot that's profound in there and we can't go into all of it in detail. But first of all, notice the response of the servants, which really puts this in context. Even Nabal's servants, and put in context, these may well be at least some of them slaves, uh, they despise Nabal and they do it openly to his wife and she doesn't discipline them for it. She actually ends up agreeing with them. You've got to be pretty wretched if you're a powerful person your servants despise you and your wife will agree with the servants against you on the other hand they speak really highly of David and his men not only did they not harass them they actively protected them and I think rather than seeing this as a racket David would have seen this as the right way to act towards a kinsman probably wouldn't have hurt politically either as he's setting himself up or, and being set up by God to be king. Well, you'd have thought it wouldn't hurt him politically. It makes no difference in this case because Nabal's an idiot. He wasn't running a protection racket. He was just expecting Nabal to do the honourable thing. And so when Abigail hears of her husband's foolishness, she's very swift to act. Uh, she organises a generous gift and then sends on her servants a, ahead of her, which is incidentally the same tactic that Jacob used back in Genesis when he was about to go and greet his brother Esau after many years having deceived Esau and, and there'd been bad blood between them. He sent his family and lots of gifts ahead of him to try and placate uh, Esau, which worked in that case and, and evidently works in this case as well kind of gets interesting when Abigail meets David she gets off a donkey and she's groveling before him but this does need to be seen in a, in a couple of uh, ways first of all it's in contrast to Nabal's spurning of David in Abigail's mind she's not meeting an outlaw 
Now, she is meeting the man who, well, she doesn't know for sure, but given what the servants have said, the man who is about to come and wreak havoc on her household, destroy everything and everyone she loves, and one person she doesn't, but she's not meeting an outlaw. She is meeting the future king. She knows who David is. She talks him up. She affirms uh, that he is the Lord's anointed. So she's pleading for the life of her household. But, you know, that seems to be the almost a lesser concern for Abigail in this verse. She's concerned uh, for David and the way he establishes his throne and that he goes in without guilt and without regret. We don't know if she had children. We can probably assume that she did. But she clearly has good relationships with her servants. So she, she is concerned for them as well. We see real wisdom in her speech as well. She's really quite canny. Um, she comes up to David and says, My Lord, the guilt is mine. It's clearly not. But the guilt is mine. So what's let it fall to me. What's David going to do? Here's a righteous woman bowing before him, exact opposite to her husband. Uh, it becomes very quickly very hard to say no, and he's certainly not going to punish her for that. She invokes the name of the God who David loves and who she loves. She speaks actually as if the attack has already been called off. She says, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed. David hasn't said anything yet. He hasn't agreed not to attack her. She just shows real wisdom, real humility, real strength and real courage in this, these verses. And I really love the way she turns David back to the Lord and says, look, someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living. Remember God. God, God is the one who cares for you. God will avenge you. She points him back to God. Verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought to him and said, Go home in peace. See, I have heard what you said and have granted your request. It's really interesting. In the previous uh, section, Abigail seems to have had a, a real sense of divine purpose in this. It, it is God who is somehow moving her. Um, she's not just, she is there of her own volition, but there's more going on. And David agrees with her that the Lord has stopped me from doing this. And he accepts Abigail's request. So he says, blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel. May your discernment be blessed. May you be blessed. Which reflects the pronouncements that he gave to uh, Nabal at the start. Peace to you, peace to your family, peace to all that is yours. Only this time it's on a worthy person. Verse 37 in the morning when Nabal, so, uh, sorry, 36, verse 36, then Abigail went to Nabal and there he was in his house holding a feast 
fit for a king. Nabal's heart was cheerful and he was very drunk, so she didn't say anything to him until morning light. In the morning when Nabal sobered up and in inverted in commas, brackets, um, probably had a hangover, his wife told him about these events. His heart died and he became a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. Then David sent messengers to speak to Abigail about marrying him. When David's servants came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David sent us to bring you to him as a wife. And she stood up, paid homage with her face to the ground and said, Here I am, your servant, a slave to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail got up quickly and with her five female servants accompanying her, rode on the donkey following David's messengers. And so she became his wife. It goes on and talks about his other wives as well. Again, we just see this real humility in Abigail. Uh, she's not just coming before a nobody. She is about to marry a king. Well, Abigail declared that God would avenge David, and that's exactly what God did. Uh, and once again, Abigail's wisdom shines through. Rather than speaking to uh, Nabal when he was happy and probably wouldn't listen she waits until he's sobered up now who knows what effect she was expecting this to have but probably not the effect it had uh, which evidently was probably some sort of stroke or, or something like that and I think the reaction here really shows his heart because Nepal like so many people in in history and in the Bible Nepal could have repented I mean, he obviously realizes the gravity of what has just happened. He could have said, wife, you've done a wonderful thing. I am a fool. And he could have tried to make amends with David, sent more gifts, said, you know, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't. He just has this violent reaction that leads to his death. Evidently, he's not the sort of man who would forgive easily and probably expects no forgiveness either. And so whether he's overcome by fear, whether he's overcome by the effects of too much partying or both, or whether God just acts sovereignly, it really doesn't matter. Apparently this stroke or whatever it is, is the instrument of God's judgment on Nabal, just as Abigail had been an instrument of uh, God for bringing about righteousness in, in David and stopping him from doing something foolish. And then... They get married. Happy ending to the story. No doubt David saw Abigail as a good catch, and she really would have been, but there's probably a political element here as well that just goes without saying in most ancient royal marriages. You, you didn't marry for love on the whole, unless you were Solomon and married everyone. Um, you married for strategic alliances, and Abigail presumably comes from a fairly powerful family. He takes her into his harem. Well, she might be the second woman in his harem, but she goes willingly. So what do we learn from this story? I want to encourage you to talk about this in your uh, discipleship groups, small groups. Um, you've probably got your own thoughts. Just reading this, I, I, I see some, uh, some more things than what I got here, but time is limited. And I just want to bring out two. And, and in both these cases... Uh, 
Abigail is an agent of, of God. And first is God's grace towards David. And this can be really comforting towards us. Now, as you read the story, if you're a cautious reader, you may have wondered if perhaps there was something cultural going on that David uh, explodes and is going to kill Nabal. Maybe he has some uh, reason, um, some justification that we're not really sure of. We've missed in the Bible or in the culture. But no, Abigail's speech makes it very clear that he is overreacting. Nabal may have been inviting trouble, but previously in the story, we have seen David express his trust in God. We have seen him restrain himself from even justified acts of violence. And it's just simply the fact that no matter how serious the matter, the people of God have no business meeting insults with swords. But fortunately, God intervenes. God stops David from sinning and sinning terribly. Abigail is God's instrument of grace towards David to stop him from doing something he'll regret, something that could quite likely compromise his reign uh, and something that when he took the throne he would have to painfully atone for. And it's wonderful that we too have an agent of grace, someone who intervenes to stop us doing wrong when we're enticed into sin, if we'll let him? Jesus. And perhaps more pertinent for those of us who are prone to stumbling is someone who has grace towards us when we do sin, someone who's our atonement, an agent of God, Jesus. The second matter is that of God's sovereignty. Uh, Christians have always vigorously debated the matter of God's sovereignty, God in control versus human free will. Where do these things intersect? Are we free agents or does God ordain everything that will happen? Well, I think there's both and going on here. Clearly in this story, the people have free will. Um, Nabal rejects David because he's a fool, not because God made him do it. David straps on his sword because he's angry, not because God made him do it. Clearly, God tries to stop him from doing it. Abigail intervened because she was godly and wise and brave, not because God made her do it. And yet, both she and David are conscious that God is acting through her, that she is God's agent to stop sin and bring about righteousness and according to abigail's own words this story isn't about how she intervenes to stop the massacre but how god intervenes to stop a massacre paul discusses this issue of god's sovereignty in romans 9 uh, to 11 which can really be uh, a challenging section of the bible he talks about the example of pharaoh during the exodus when the Israelites were, were leaving uh, Israel and Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so God keeps working these miracles and Pharaoh just keeps hardening up more and more and more until uh, we get to the Passover and the firstborn of Egypt um, are killed sovereignly by God and the Israelites are set free. And Paul talks about how God uses Pharaoh 
Pharaoh's own hardening of his heart to achieve his purposes. If God can use a hard heart to bring about his purposes, how much more can he bring, uh, can he use a yielded heart? And we see this all the time in the case of righteous people like Abigail, whose will aligns with God's will. I mean, God almost didn't need to tell Abigail to do anything because she had such a heart for God. She was of good character and courageous and wise that she will just act in alignment with the will of God, just almost out of who she is. And of course, we see it most clearly in Jesus, who is completely submitted to the will of God to the point of yielding to the cross. There's no tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity when we are yielded to God. And so the challenge for us is to live lives that are yielded to God in this way. You know, the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come. Do we pray that expecting to be part of the answer to that prayer? That God will bring his kingdom through us as our lives are yielded to him as his subjects. That we will be part of bringing God's rule and reign onto the earth. Are we soaked in God's word so that we know his heart? Are we attentive in prayer so that we know God's voice? Are we filled with the Spirit so that we have the power to do God's will? And will our hearts be yielded to God like Abigail's was? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of such a godly woman, such an inspiring story and uh, well, I just love the drama in it. But Father, we're inspired by the example of Abigail and I pray, Father, that we will have hearts like hers. But Lord, she does point us towards Christ. Our atonement, uh, your grace towards us in him. May we be yielded to him and like him. And may you use us as instruments of grace to others, as instruments of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.